Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. On today's show, we are very pleased to welcome an extraordinary guest and activist and scholar, Sherilyn Eiffel, the president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, the nation's premier civil rights law organization fighting for racial justice and equality. The LDF was founded in 1940 by the legendary civil rights lawyer and later Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall and became a separate organization from the NAACP in 1957. The lawyers at the Legal Defense Fund developed and executed the legal strategy that led to the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus the Board of Education, widely regarded as the most transformative and monumental legal decision of the 20th century. Sherilyn Eiffel is the second woman to lead the organization. She's also a astounding scholar. Um, one of her books is, Confront, is On the Courthouse Lawn, Confronting the Legacy of Lynching in the 21st Century which just came out with a new edition and a foreword by Brian Stevenson, uh, the author of Just Mercy. And another one is A Perilous Path, Talking Race, Inequality, and the Law, which is a conversation between Sherilyn Eiffel, uh, former Attorney General Loretta Lynch, Brian Stevenson, and Anthony C. Thompson. So Sherilyn Eiffel, welcome to Race and Thank Democracy. you. Thank you for having me. Uh, you do such extraordinary work, and this is 2020. This is such an extraordinary time. I want to have a discussion with you about voting rights and criminal justice reform and the work that the LDF is doing, that you're doing uh, in the context of voting rights in 2020, especially this landscape that is post-Shelby V. Holder, mm -hmm. but also a landscape that is post the Obama Department of Justice. You had this great conversation with Loretta Lynch, mm -hmm. and certainly Loretta Lynch and Eric Holder mm -hmm. were back-to-back, -back, not just African-American attorney generals, but really back-to-back -back attorney generals who I think believed in the law vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Voting Rights Act and sort of black citizenship rights for all mm -hmm. African-Americans, irrespective of race, class, uh, mm -hmm. gender. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about what has changed? What is the LDF trying to do right now in 2020? We're heading towards national elections in November to try to ensure in this post-Shelby uh, universe that voting rights are going to be guaranteed. Yeah, it is a challenging time. I mean, for those who don't know, uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder, it was a case that um, we were parties in. Um, or represented parties in. And uh, the case essentially uh, wound up in the Supreme Court, and the court, in a decision by Chief Justice uh, Roberts, said that we no longer needed uh, the provisions of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act is largely regarded as the most effective, successful civil rights tool in any civil rights statute that was passed during that, uh, that heyday period. And wh why um, is that? Because Section 5 put a requirement on jurisdictions that want to make voting changes, that if they want to make those changes, they would have to first get permission, have it pre-cleared by either the Attorney General of the United States and the Department of Justice or a federal district court judge. And the that jurisdictions seems like a that pretty would, high bar. Well, it, the good news about it is uh, the point of it was to not require 
uh, individuals or the Justice Department have to sue every time some discriminatory voting change was made. And actually, if you look at the legislative history of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 and the Senate report, what the Senate says is that it's trying to get at not only uh, contemporaneous discrimination, voting discrimination, but what they called ingenious methods that might be developed in the future. So Congress understood that vote suppression is a is a shapeshifter. They understood that they would not be able to anticipate all of the ways in which whites would attempt to hold on to power through voting. And so therefore they said, you know, if you if you want to make any change, if you, if you first send it to the attorney general and the attorney general's assessment is whether or not the change will have a negative effect on African-American voting strength or power. And let me ask you something, because you're you're a lawyer, law mm-hmm. professor, legal expert. Um why wasn't the original VRA, why weren't all the states mm-hmm. under the VRA? Because mm-hmm. I know right now there's legislation proposed in Congress mm-hmm. to have a new Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. where all the states mm-hmm. would be under the mm-hmm. jurisdiction of mm-hmm. the Voting Rights Act. Sure. So you remember what the conditions were in 1965 that led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act. You remember the Selma to Montgomery march. Absolutely. Uh, the issue that we were confronting uh, as, as a people at that moment was the refusal of mostly and almost exclusively Southern jurisdictions who were denying African-Americans the ability to register in some instances, to vote in others through a ver- various means, poll tax, uh, literacy tests, understanding clause, violence, intimidation, uh, and so forth. So the target really was at where the problem was. And what the, uh, f- the framers of the Voting Rights Act did was they created a coverage formula And so they looked at a series of factors, Uh, you know, African-American registration, uh, turnout, participation and election in the 1964 elections. That was the formula. And if you fell under that formula, if that formula uh, produced the results that kind of triggered the coverage of Section 5, then you were under it. And it actually turned out not to be exclusively southern states because, of course, the Voting Rights Act was also amended to include language minority provisions. And as Barbara Jordan, we're here in the great that's state exactly of Texas. That's exactly right. And so that's how the whole state of Texas yeah. was, was covered. But also people forget three boroughs of New York City were covered, yes. counties in California yes. um, and other places throughout the country. So it turned out not to be entirely uh, the South, but but was meant to address what, what had been uh, a very regional problem. Yes. And I will say that um, when the act was reauthorized, so it's been reauthorized a number of times and always challenged, uh, the last reauthorization was in 2006, and Congress held hearings over the course of a year. Witness testimony, 90 witnesses, 15,000 pages of testimony to determine whether it was still necessary, right, and whether that formula and the states that were included under it still was the appropriate way to determine who should be covered. And the overwhelming conclusion of a bipartisan Congress was was that you needed it more than ever. In fact, many of the members of Congress expressed surprise at what they found in those hearings. They thought that the evidence would show that things were better than it was. Uh, And so Congress voted in the House, I think it was 396 to 33, that they reauthorized the Voting Rights Act in 2006. And in the Senate, it was 98 to 0. So overwhelmingly bipartisan reauthorization in 2006. And yet when it gets to Chief Justice Roberts in the Supreme Court in 2013, they make the decision, contrary to that evidence that's in the record, kind of on their feeling, 
that the South has changed, that this is a way of branding and punishing the South, and therefore we don't need Section 5 anymore. And the result of that has been two things. One, exactly what we predicted, that the Southern states were true to form. (laughs) Uh, The Attorney General of of Texas, uh, right after the decision was announced, hours later tweeted his intention of re-upping the state's voter ID law that they had not been able to implement because of Section 5, that he was now going to try and impose that voter ID law, the most stringent voter ID law passed in the country, which LDF and many other civil rights organizations challenged and had to be changed. And I know I've read where you said that the Texas voter ID law disfranchises 600,000 voters. Oh, yeah. We proved it at trial. I mean, and, and this was a, you know, we challenged the law not only because of its effect, but also because of its intent. Uh, you know, the, the meticulous way in which the forms of ID that would satisfy uh, the requirements of the law for purposes of voting were very racially skewed, right? So you couldn't use uh, your, you know, our clients, students at Prairie View A&M could no longer use their state university ID. You couldn't use your tribal ID, but you could use a concealed gun carry permit, right? So so when when Texas tried to impose this law while Section 5 was was still in force— uh, naturally, the attorney general said, no, you can't. But now that uh, the Supreme Court decided the Shelby decision, they imposed that law. We had to try that case. So here's the perfect example of why Section 5 not only was helpful for uh, for you know African-Americans and Latinos and other uh, civil rights uh, activists, but also for the states. I mean, so we went through how many years of litigation? We sued in 2014, and the case wasn't resolved until 2017 or 2018. Um, but for the price of a stamp under Section 5, a jurisdiction like Texas would simply submit their plan to impose this ID law. The attorney general would review it, would get, gather information from other sources, and would make a decision for the cost of that postage stamp. But instead now, Texas had to litigate for four years for us to simply prove what we knew at the beginning, which was that the effect of the voter ID law would be racially discriminatory. So that's the loss of Section 5. So that's one thing that the states returned from. And you saw it in North Carolina had an ID law as well. Um, What was the final disposition of the Texas case? We won that trial, 94-page decision, finding that the law was was intentionally discriminatory and violated the Voting Rights Act. We went up to the Fifth Circuit. They affirmed the finding that it violated the Voting Rights Act, sent it back down on intentional discrimination. The trial judge again found that it was intentionally discriminatory, went back up to the Court of Appeals, and by then we were in negotiations to resolve the litigation with the changes that now exist in Texas uh, that have ameliorated uh, the harshest effects of that law. But you what, look at, what are some of those changes that happened? Um, essentially, it, it, it almost looks like South Carolina, where you can make a declaration for why you don't have the ID so that you can be freed up. Uh, of course, you know, making that declaration is a is a, uh, a sworn statement, but but ways that you can get out of having to meet what had been the stringent requirements of the so law. So there's some mitigation. So, so there's mitigation. Uh, you know, in North Carolina, they passed an omnibus voter suppression law that included ID, but also included, you know, ending uh, uh, a curriculum that, you know, taught 16-year-olds about voting. I mean, it was it was just an, an insane law. And the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals found that uh, the North Carolina law was created with surgical precision, yeah. right, to target African-American voters. So that, that, so that first thing that happened after Shelby was that, a return to precisely what Congress knew in 1965 would happen, 
which would be the ingenious methods of Southern jurisdictions seeking to engage in voter suppression. So certainly the LDF and you, you've had, at least during the second term of the Obama administration, at least a partner who was trying to stave some of this off. Even as the Supreme Court had made the decision, it seems like the Lynch and Holder uh, DOJ mm-hmm. was trying to partner. Now, since January 20th of 2017, there's been a new administration. And so where are we right now with the work you're doing, especially I know you're going to be going to Selma soon. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's going to be the 55th mm-hmm. anniversary of the Selma to Montgomery demonstrations. And this August 6th is going to be the 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights mm-hmm. Act that was signed into legislation by Lyndon Johnson. So where are we at now mm-hmm. with this 2020 election, both you know, when we think about federal, state, mm-hmm. local mm-hmm. protections for, for so, people? So actually the Texas voter ID case in brief, is the best example of what that change looks like. The day of the Shelby County decision, um, obviously, you know, devastating decision, Attorney General then Eric Holder called a meeting at his office and civil rights litigators went to his office to meet with the Attorney General about, now what are we going to do? And he pledged then to make sure that the resources of the Department of Justice would be available and ready to use to challenge voter suppression. And in fact, uh, the Department of Justice was one of the one of the challengers to the Texas voter ID law. So that's the perfect example. Uh, but what makes it even better is that I told you that we went up on appeal on the uh, Texas voter ID law. And while we were on our way to oral argument before the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, we learned that... Uh, the attorney now attorney general Jeff Sessions would no longer stand by the position that the Department of Justice had adopted from the beginning of the litigation that the law was passed with the purpose and intent of discriminating against African American voters. So immediately you had a switch and that was maybe I want to say February or March of 2017. So immediately the Department of Justice uh, essentially switched switches sides. And what we've seen since then is a complete absence of a voting rights docket at the Department of Justice. And it's important for people to understand the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice is a, was created within that crucible uh, to try and really take a leadership role in enforcing the nation's civil rights laws. And it has been entirely abdicated in the voting space uh, since January 2017. What we decided um, was that we would have to become a private DOJ, that we would have to shift our focus marshal our resources to be able to do the work that the Department of Justice would no longer do. And uh, so what, what's some of the work that the that, LDF that, is doing? That means increasing our litigation, focusing really on local jurisdictions, which we do a lot of that work at the local level because it's the work that kind of stays under the radar. There are always lots of folks who want to challenge state ID laws and state redistricting. Uh, but we bring a lot of cases in small towns in Alabama for the county commission elections, school board elections, and so forth. We realized that we would have to marshal additional resources to actually do election protection work. Um, And so as we go into the season of primaries next week and the general this year, um, we take very seriously elections. We, we, our mantra is that there are elections every year. So we're not on a four-year cycle, on a two-year cycle. And we are physically at the polls in eight states on Election Day. And why is that, for our listeners, why is that so important? Because I don't know if everyone knows that part of the VRA was um, providing voter registrar um, um, folks who would go and, and sort of— And uh, monitor elections. And monitor yeah. elections. Yeah. Uh, and we usually think about monitoring elections as happening in other countries, not in the United no, States. No, no. You need people at the polls. People, I think people don't know that 
voter suppression happens on election day. I think people think of voter suppression as being the ID laws and gerrymandering and moving polling places and so forth, and that is part of it. But a lot of it is what you see happen on election day at the polls. You know, what happens when people who have registered and were in good standing suddenly show up at the polls and find they're on an inactive list? Uh, You know, I've had the experience of doing poll watching in Alabama you know, older African-American couple, husband and wife, go into the polls. They've been living in the same place for 25 years. They come out. She was able to vote. He wasn't able to vote. Uh, or he says, yes, I voted, but, I, you know, it was fine because it was provisional, right? People don't know that provisional votes are not counted, right, unless it, that's why it's provisional. The provision is that you come back to the Board of Elections later that week with proof of why you should have been able to vote, right, at that polling place. So helping people understand the need to try and vote by regular ballot and knowing when when they are able to vote by regular ballot. So knowing that in the different jurisdictions and states and being there and available, those polling place changes that do happen that, that morning, people pulling up to a polling place and there's nobody there and there's a makeshift sign that says, no, the polling place is now, uh, you know, uh, several blocks away. And certainly um, we saw some of these irregularities in 2018. Absolutely. Uh, especially in Georgia in the case of Stacey Abrams. Yes, you did. Who was running to be the first That's African-American. Right. You, you had Gwinnett County where they didn't have the plugs to plug in the yeah. machines and people waited online for four hours. You had R- Richland County, South Carolina, where machines were changing the votes from uh, Republican to Democrat. And and to be frank, the county officials were, v- were very appreciative of our help when we could tell them the polling places where this was happening, finding out that there were too few technicians to fix machines that had to be calibrated. I mean, this is really the fine work, right, of, of, of election protection, making sure that there are enough machines in a polling place. You know, you have the long lines because of the failure of county officials to do the proper uh, uh, study and allocation of how many machines are likely to be needed in a particular polling place, which should involve thinking about, you know, how many students enrolled there this year, uh, did a new housing development open and so forth. Uh, So we need to be there. And so we decided that we would have to increase our forces, that we would have to train volunteers, uh, that we would have to link arms with our partners uh, who are all part of the the civil rights hotline, eight six six our vote. And and does this voter suppression really impact African American and Latinx communities more um, than other communities when you think about voter suppression that's happening post Shelby? Mm-hmm. And if so, why? Why why is it is it? Because I, I I want us to because we know well, you there's really a want history. to do ABC of this, huh? Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> I, I, because I I understand that there's this level of voters, but. Why so surgical, especially you, you talked about Prairie View A&M mm-hmm. and African Amer- historically mm-hmm. African-American mm-hmm. colleges. There were reports when Andrew Gillum was running for mm-hmm. governor in mm-hmm. Florida that HBCUs in Florida mm-hmm. were being suppressed. Well, you rem- um, you remember there was, there was a special Senate election uh, in Mississippi also in 2018. Uh, Mike Espy was running. Yes. And the incumbent senator was caught on a hot mic saying something like, Maybe there are some colleges where we don't want people to vote. And just that statement was enough to send us out. Uh, the election was just being held a few weeks later to and, and to do our election protection work at HBCUs all over Mississippi because of that concern. Uh, Prairie View A&M has had consistent problems. This was one where an instance in 2018 where we had to sue during early voting because the early voting assigned to Prairie View was not the same as the early voting a time assigned to uh, other other stations and polling polling sites in the county. So we had to sue Waller County yet again. Um, uh, I guess the question you're asking is, is racial voter suppression real? And the answer is yes. And I uh, that it's not a new phenomenon. It is not since 2017. 
During the Obama administration, we had a full docket of cases as well. We had a full docket of cases before the Shelby County decision. I came to LDF as a voting rights lawyer in 1988. So this has been an ongoing problem. It's the reason why the law has continued to be reauthorized. And it's about power. It's about white supremacy. Um, And I guess one of the reasons why I'm asking is, um, Sherilyn, when we think about the heroic period of the civil rights movement, which the NAACP mm -hmm. legal defense comes out of, Mm -hmm. we have a national narrative that we won after these acts were Mm -hmm. passed. So Civil Rights Act, Mm -hmm. Brown, the Voting Rights Act, even the Fair Housing Act. Mm -hmm. And so I think it really, the work you're doing, a lot of people are unaware at the granular level. And maybe Shelby, post-Shelby, has Mm -hmm. made people more concerned Mm -hmm. But people thought we won this. Like people, mm. people have. It's hard to imagine that people are trying to actively suppress mm. uh, the the voting rights of Black American citizens. Maybe prisoners, mm-hmm. maybe people who mm-hmm. are in quotes bad people, but not citizens. And that's why I. You know, it's it's so interesting that you're saying that because it, that's one of the reasons why I refer to civil rights work as as kind of democracy maintenance work. Yeah. We're like the canary in the coal mine. We're the early warning system. A lot of what we're seeing right now, uh, frankly, that people are willing to believe now is exactly what we were saying (laughs) was happening, right? When when Barack Obama was president, people thought, well, you have a black president, you have a black attorney general, it's all good. Um, And uh, as I said, we, we had no absence of work. I remind people that, you know, the most um, heart wrenching videos of unarmed African-Americans being killed by the police happened during the Obama administration or people saw during the Obama administration. And this is work that we've been engaged in for decades. And I want to, with you saying that, Sherilyn, I want to pivot the conversation because I want to talk about stop and frisk and criminal justice reform. Can I I say one other thing about voting, though, before you switch? I had said that the, the first result of Shelby was that many Southern jurisdictions reverted to form just as Congress knew they would. Yes. But what I want to say is that the, because you asked why, why wasn't it national? The effect of the Shelby decision has been actually to metastasize the voting suppression that used to exist primarily in the South. So then you saw voter ID laws in Wisconsin and you saw moved polling places outside Dodge City, Kansas. Far because away it emboldened, it emboldened opponents. Yes, of it, now they rights. saw, oh, this is a way of uh, holding on to power or wielding power that no longer will have the imprimatur, right? of being illegal activity or disfavored activity because of uh, in section under section 5 it would have been immediately recognized right so the effect of the Shelby decision was not only to have southern jurisdictions revert to form but actually to nationalize what had largely been a regional problem and so now you see voter suppression happening all over the country you saw north north dakota uh, require, yes. you know, everyone to now have a street address, even knowing that their Native American population, in many instances, living on the reservation, does not have a street address. You began to see this happen in places where we had not seen it before. So part of the consciousness and what people are seeing now is that this thing that had been limited in scope. Now, the South is a big swath of the United States, so I don't want to say it was a small problem. But I do want to say that the decision has not only just reverted us back to a place that we were before. It's taken us to a new place in which voter suppression is now something that is available and utilized in jurisdictions all over the country. I want to talk about uh, this within the context of the 2020 election and criminal justice reform, because 
Stop and Frisk and NAACP Legal Defense Fund has done great work, LDF, and been one of the mm-hmm. um, um, representing litigants. I'm from New York City, born and raised, and Stop and Frisk is really something that, truthfully, New York City that I grew up in in the 70s and 80s, more police violence against African Americans. On one level, it was the status quo. And I remember Eleanor Bumpers, mm-hmm. and there's a video going around of Audre Lorde talking mm-hmm. about Eleanor mm-hmm. Bumpers. I remember that growing up mm-hmm. in the city. I remember Michael Griffith mm-hmm. in Howard Beach mm-hmm. in 1986, mm-hmm. and I was a freshman in high school at the time. Michael Stewart. Um, Michael Stewart, um, you know, Yousef Hawkins. Mm-hmm. I remember all this. But certainly under David Dinkins um, with the Safe City, mm-hmm. Safe Streets Act, and then under Mayor Giuliani, mm-hmm. you started to get this broken windows policing. Mm-hmm. And Broken Windows was really under both Democratic and Republican mm-hmm. administrations. And then under uh, Michael Bloomberg uh, from 2002 to 2014, 12 mm-hmm. years as mayor, um, you saw extraordinary numbers of black and Latinx young people stopped in terms of stop and frisk all the way until there was litigation that put an end to this. And I, right now, Michael Bloomberg is one of the people running for president, and certainly his record has been um, utilized and deployed by critics against him. But I want to talk about stop and frisk and the way in which the criminal justice system and the demonization of, of black and brown bodies has also been connected to voter suppression. And, and there's sort of a feedback loop where, and, and what I mean by that is the idea of um, everything from felon disenfranchisement to when we think about the Clinton crime bill and the criminalization of welfare and the poor, um, and, and the welfare reform bill too, where you have uh, black and brown folks who are being locked up, a lot of times not regaining access to citizenship, uh, but but now, um, and this is the, the, the interesting irony of this, in the age of Black Lives Matter, having a constituency of people who are, who are forcing this into the spotlight. This happened to Hillary Clinton in 2016 as well, where she had to answer for super predator. And right now, Bloomberg and others are answering for their criminal justice, um, mm-hmm. their past mm-hmm. criminal mm-hmm. justice uh, policies. Um, so what, what is the LDF doing vis-a-vis the criminal justice reform? Um, obviously, there's a First Step Act that was passed mm-hmm. in 2019. Many don't think that it's gone far enough. But I want to talk about criminal justice. Well, that's a lot. Um, you know, in, in many ways, criminal justice—so first of all, for LDF— criminal justice work and voting rights work are really two of the kind of central pillars of the work we do. And we add to that education and then economic justice. Um, You're right to suggest that, you know, there is a connection between uh, criminal justice and and voting rights because it really is about citizenship. It's about who gets to be a full and first class citizenship. Now, these, these questions were supposed to be put to rest by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, the Civil War Amendments. One was supposed to end slavery. The second was supposed to ensure that African Americans were citizens uh, of the country in which they were born, birthright citizenship, and entitled to equal protection of the law. Anyone who is within the physical jurisdiction of the United States entitled to equal protection of the laws and due process so that the laws could not be used arbitrarily against you. And then the 15th Amendment that you could not be denied the right to vote based on your race. So that should have resolved it. It was quickly apparent that that did not resolve it, right? And we needed additional civil rights statutes and so forth. But a key tool that really is part of uh, what has been carried over from slavery is a narrative about, about black people that allows you to create a criminal justice structure 
that holds them in a position of second class, or at least a considerable number in a position of second class citizenship. And that narrative is about black uh, criminality, about uh, the fear of blacks, about black intelligence, um, about the refinement of the spirit uh, of black people and so forth. Uh, And those narratives are strong and powerful. And once you have those narratives embedded in public policy and in the thinking of public policy makers, it becomes easy then to make laws that are deeply punitive in ways that uh, deny the humanity of black people. And you know this, of course, that, you know, at the turn of the of the 20th century, uh, many southern states redid their their state constitutions. And in those state constitutions were the kinds of provisions that we find ourselves living with today, you know, disenfranchising uh, formerly incarcerated people, yes. creating uh, criminal statutes for very minor infractions, infractions that they thought black people were more likely uh, to run afoul of, given uh, our position at that time. Um, and so embedded in the law was really a, an embrace of these narratives and stereotypes about who black people really are in America. And so to that extent, the idea of second-class citizenship is deeply embedded. If we think about how we express what is the common expression of citizenship in this country for Americans, it's the vote. How how can we all express ourselves as citizens? Well, some Mm -hmm. people will march and some people can protest and some people can run for office, right? But the theory is that if you are a citizen and you are of age, that you can vote. That's our common means of expressing that. And so the denial of that means of expression, whether through voter suppression or through uh, laws laws that disenfranchise formerly incarcerated persons, are all ways of sending that same message of second-class citizenship status. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and the we, fight against it really is not only not only a fight uh, against those individual things, against overcriminalization and mass incarceration and against voter suppression, but also a fight for the realization of first-class citizenship yes, to which we are entitled by the Constitution. And, and I want to talk to you about when, whether we're thinking about the Obama administration, which was obviously more positive, or this current administration, this idea of race, democracy, citizenship, um, how come we don't see the kind of embrace of just that concept, uh, I think, in, in policy, um, in the same manner that we saw during the heroic period of the civil rights movement, meaning Tell that me what you mean. we've got 2.3 million people in prison. Um, we, we've seen all the video and the evidence of black folks, including children, getting shot, Tamir Rice, Corinne Gaines. Um, and we haven't really seen, um, we, we've seen a movement for black lives, but in terms of in a policy, uh, in a transformative policy way, we haven't seen it line up and correlate with the with the catastrophe that is the present and and at least some legislation that we would say hey there was a reason why king and other people were backing the voting rights act and the civil rights act we knew we had this this massive problem but we said these things were going to at least ameliorate it and i don't see the one to one yeah but there isn't a one to one i think we have to be really careful about making comparisons to the civil rights movement because the conditions are actually quite different uh, in ways that are super, super alarming, especially since 2017. Um, so first of all, the best and the most important and lasting civil rights progress happens, in my view, as a civil rights lawyer, 
when lawyers and movements are happening at the same time, right? So that's, we had that in the civil rights movement, and actually the lawyers were out ahead because there was the legal strategy leading up to Brown, which was being executed over the course of 20 years and resulted in Brown in 1954. And the relationship between what people saw out of Brown and how people interpreted Brown actually had a very powerful effect on someone like Rosa Parks and on others who engaged in that really early civil disobedience that began some of those movements. So that's 1956 that we have then the Montgomery bus boycott. We don't get to the Voting Rights Act until 1965. So between Brown and the Voting Rights Act is 10 years. Yes. And so you have 10 years of movement. Yeah, massive you have, demonstrations. You have massive protests, demonstrations, yes. deaths, uprisings, martyrships, yeah. uprisings. <laughs> uprisings. Uh, you have things that happen in between. You have the creation of the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department from the Civil Rights Act of 1957, yeah. right? Um and so you have movement that's happening. You have a, a, a president who is reluctant and has to be pushed, John F. Kennedy, into embracing civil rights. And then you have a president, LBJ, who does embrace uh, civil rights uh, immediately thereafter. And so those are all the conditions you have to kind of acknowledge are present in the civil rights movement. Compare it to today, okay? We actually don't have those conditions. We actually do have movement Mm-hmm. happening, right? Massive so, movement. Mass yeah. movement. So you have so you have Post Ferguson, you have uh you have Parkland, you have yeah. the Women's March, you have yeah. there is and so that's what's exciting yeah. about this movement. Movement for black lives. Movement for black lives. You feel the you feel the 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 energy coming from uh from from the grassroots. But we have essentially what is an aborted process, right? You've got Obama who's president who's actually doing some things yes. or trying to do some things. What do you think about that presidency in terms of not the person, but the administration vis-a-vis criminal justice well, and let me, voting let me, rights? Let me come back to that for a yeah. second. But, but whatever are the nascent moves that are happening, yeah. it's aborted, yeah. right, by, by the election of, of Trump. Yeah. Uh, because the, the movements that begin to really develop don't really happen until Obama's second term. Yes. Um, everybody's real dreamy the first term. So <laughs> for the second term, you have— Republicans in Congress who are very serious that they're not going to let anything happen, right? He mm-hmm. loses the House uh, in that in midterm, that first yeah. midterm. So the conditions are no longer. Yep. You have an increasingly, you know, conservative Supreme Court that begins to happen. Certainly after he leaves, you have the election of Trump. So you have a real shutdown of what is the, what could have been the beginning of the top to meet the bottom, yes. right? To make yeah. the kind of transformation that you're talking about happen. That said. I don't think we should adhere to the idea that no changes did happen and are not happening because they are. They're just being driven at a different level than they would have been if we had a federal administration that was more open to it, which is a a tremendous loss because uh, change happens. It can happen in a much more widespread way when the federal government is on board. So let's take policing reform. We have the protests around Mike Brown being killed and now, for the for the first time that I can remember, the the nation's attention is on an issue that has plagued the African American community for decades. Yes. Um, you talk about Queens. We're both from Queens. My first even understanding of who the police are is when I'm ten years old, and everyone's talking about a police officer killing a young man. Um, And I remember it on the front page of the Daily News and so forth. And it was a big deal because the person who was killed was also 10. So I was 10 and he was 10. And that was Clifford Glover. Mm. Right. So, you know, we don't need to get into how old I am now. But just to just to take it back to show how long even in my lifetime this has been real. And, And in that instance, also, 
when Officer Shea was acquitted because he was actually, he was so egregious, he was actually tried. And when he was acquitted, there was an uprising in Queens and fires and people turned over cars. People just don't have this memory anymore that this actually happened. So, um, so an issue that's been percolating for decades is getting the attention. You have the Department of Justice that does twice as many pattern and practice investigations of police departments as they had done in the prior administration. So and this is the in, Obama administration. This is the Obama administration. So they're in Baltimore and they're, you know, they're in Camden and they're in Newark and they're in all these places. And I've read the DOJ report on Baltimore and yes. Ferguson and it's extraordinary. Yes. But I want to, with, 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 the, with the time that, that, we, that we have left, I want to ask, what, what about um, next steps? What are we doing both in 2020 but the next five, 10 years, irrespective of who wins at the federal level. Well, so that's the point, yeah. I guess. For us, the shift, the, the strategic shift, we knew that we would not have the support of the Department of Justice when we knew that uh, President Trump intended to appoint Jeff Sessions because we knew Jeff Sessions from our work in Alabama, uh, from his time as the U.S. attorney in Alabama decades ago. So we knew that. We knew he didn't believe in consent decrees and so forth. And so we really devolved a lot of our work to the local level. Um, we put more resources into our policing reform campaign that, you know, does work in Baltimore, trying to monitor the consent decree that uh, that, that narrowly made it through, uh, despite the new administration's efforts to try to scuttle it. Um, we have the ongoing monitoring of the consent decree in the stop and frisk case in New York, which people should know that's still going on. Um, and we try to do policing reform work that tries to make that transformation happen at the local level, that tries to keep that energy alive, that tries to keep a sense of alarm among uh, influencers that this is an important issue. The move of, of many around pushing for progressive prosecutors and so forth came out of this. So there's a lot that has just that came out of that that is actually still happening. Every year there are bills that are focused on uh, trying to address uh, police use of misuse of force. Um, you know, slowing down body-worn cameras, uh, uh, challenging facial recognition technology, uh, challenging the New York City gang database. There's a case on the Chicago gang database. I mean, there's a lot happening in the country. It's just not happening at the federal level, okay. right? And so the first thing is, if you don't have the feds, you don't stop working. You devolve to the local and you push. Um, so that's number one of what happens in 2020. The same is true for voting. To be frank, we don't have the Department of Justice. So we will have the largest force we've ever had on the ground on election days this year. How many 14 people states. is that going to be? Well, it all depends on how many we can, how many volunteers we can train in the period of time. Uh, it'll be fewer for the primary election, but it'll be uh, several hundred people who are out uh, on election day. Uh, it's making sure we have all of the information and that we have our own system of finding out about voting changes. So we're launching a voter defender project. We'll have an app that's available this summer. So people in the ask, community yeah. can immediately give that information. How can people get involved? Is it through that app? How, how can you get involved? The app will launch in, the app will launch in June. Uh, but even before then, you can always reach out to the Legal Defense Fund. We really take seriously our social media work. You can follow me on Twitter. I try to keep as much of the information out there as possible. In fact, I think we even have up today uh, information about, you know, Texas elections. Uh, this is all nonpartisan information that's about knowing what your rights are. Uh, knowing when the dates are, when you can re when you can register, uh, knowing where you can vote, uh, and and knowing what are the conditions in which you should be reporting information back to uh, to us, so that we can try to try to troubleshoot the problem in real time. 
Um, so people will be able to do that and to, to, you know, when I'm out doing election protection work, which I, I did in Alabama for the presidential election in November 2016, you know, we have our kind of set polling places that we're, you know, monitoring. But you know what? When I look at my Twitter timeline and someone says, can you get to the such and such school that's in such and such county because we think that this is what's happening or because the lines are out the door and we can't, the machines seem to be changing the votes, we get in the car and we drive to that county and we try to find out what's going on and we get in touch with the county election board and there are circumstances in which we get in touch with the state election board and tell them that you need to have the polls open an extra hour because of what happened this morning and so forth. So we're troubleshooting in real time uh, on that day. And so however people can reach us uh, with changes that they think are problematic, we saw, uh, I think you may have seen last week or two weeks ago uh, at the early polling, polling sites in, in Chatham County, Georgia, folks out with the Confederate flags. Um, And we just joined a bunch of local groups in North Carolina, NAACP and others, uh, really demanding that the state election board uh, vigorously respond to this issue of voter intimidation. So it's already happening because we're already in early voting some places and Super Tuesday will be next uh, next week. But if you're looking for that information, we're trying to be the kind of resource that we need in the absence of Uh, aggressive action by the Department of Justice. And then the last thing I'll say is we should remember what we learned from the Mueller report, that we now also have to worry about foreign influence and foreign powers uh, who disproportionately targeted African-American voters on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Russia disproportionately, we were by and away the, the, the most targeted group for the disruption, disinformation and chaos campaign that uh, Russian uh, actors launched in 2016. And we just heard last week that that Russia intends to use the same playbook. So we should assume that once again, we're going to be under attack. I, along with other civil rights leaders, spent a year talking with folks at Facebook, trying to get them to take seriously uh, these threats. And they've made some moves. They haven't made all the moves we've wanted. In particular, they've continued to uh, uh, allow for politicians to be accept, uh, accepted or exempted from their rules on, on misinformation. And so that means our community has to be super aware. We love Facebook. We're disproportionate users of Facebook. Yes. And so it's, it's, we have to, in, the, in our families, in our churches, people have to be looking at this with a skeptical eye, right? Facebook is not a newspaper. No. It is not be. the nightly news. And so we have to have a discerning, critical eye about what we see, about what we share. A lot of what was done in 2016 was to get us fighting with each other. Yes. Um, so th- so we have to be like never before. Vigilant. So vigilant yeah. this year. And it's on every single one of us to play a role in that vigilance. I've told people and they say, what can I do? What can I do? I always vote. What can I do? Well, vote early so that you can help get people to the polls. Right. Report what you see. Uh, make sure that you're an informed voter. I bother people about this all the time. I know you vote, but you actually don't know anything about the sheriff candidate. Be honest, right? Um, this is important that we take voting so seriously. The reason that people marched across that Edmund Pettus Bridge and that we had a voting rights movement in the 1960s was because black people believed that if we could obtain political power, we could change the material conditions of our communities. It was not just to be symbolic to show we were citizens. It was to obtain power so that we could transform our own lives. So if you are voting, that's the first part. The second part is the transformation and power part. And that means you got to be showing up at those school board meetings. You have to be showing up at the county commission meetings. You have to be vigilant, not just voting for the people, but then holding them to account to deliver what what they promised and what you demand. Citizenship is a responsibility and not a burden. Yes. 
Uh, thank you. Um, Sherilyn Eiffel, we've just had a very stimulating conversation with the president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, um, Defense and Educational Fund, who is really, uh, uh, this is the nation's premier civil rights law organization on the front, uh, front lines of uh, voting suppression, uh, criminal justice reform, voting rights activism, um, and safeguarding democracy for uh, black and brown people, but for really all people uh, in the United States and, and beyond. Um, Sherilyn Eiffel can be reached on Twitter at S-I-F-I-L-L underscore L-D-F. Uh, she has 173,000 Twitter followers, so that's uh, really impressive. Um, and you can follow her on social media and really um, do everything that you can to um, support. And follow LDF on social media. Follow LDF <laughs> on social media and do everything that you can to support um, voting rights. So, Sherilyn Eiffel, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.